Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans, episode six. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Welcome to this week's edition of Agile for Humans. Very excited this week, Amitai. And yes, by the way, Amitai is here back again with me. We're going to talk through a bunch of topics, but I, I'm bursting with excitement. Can you guess why? Um, I'll tell you because you'll never guess this. I was going to try to guess really slowly, but okay. <laughs> no. So I just went out to Leibson, which is where we host this podcast, and I was looking at our statistics. So we've got four episodes out. Number five just went out tonight on No Estimates. Very already huge downloads on the No Estimates uh, episode. And it's only been live for about 40 minutes. So I'm really impressed with that. Real happy. But guess what? We've gone past 1,000 downloads with just three episodes. No kidding. We blew, blew right past it. That's a pretty good we're, number. Well, we're, and then we're not even just a little bit over 1,000. Blew past that number. Episodes four and five are dumping onto that statistic and just making it even better. It's just really exciting to see the thing that we've put together is actually gaining a little traction and seems to be, you know, a little bit popular with our audience. It makes sense that it would be because we've gotten really good people to talk to and we've had some really good conversations. So it's not surprising that those people bring some of their audiences with them and it's, you know, lucky for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been very blessed with the caliber of guests we've been able to get on here and you know a lot of people that uh that have been very giving with their time so that's been great to to quote joy inc as we were we were talking about richard sheridan in that book a little bit earlier it just it, it's a joyful moment for me it's really great to see so thank you to everyone out there listening right now who who's made this possible who's listened who's spread the word about the podcast who's provided reviews 
know, everyone out there that's helping make uh, this podcast successful, I can't thank you enough. And we're just so appreciative that you're here, that you're listening, and that, uh, that you're also participating. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the thing. If there's, if there's more you want to hear about or people you want to hear from or topics you want us to talk about, we'd love to know what that is. We'll do our best. Absolutely. And speaking of topics, I think you've put together quite a few little ideas here that we can jump into. I've got a few things I want to get into, but first and foremost... You did one of the neatest classes I think I've read about, and I wanted to pick your brain on it for a little bit. I don't want you to, you know, no spoilers here, because there are, I think there are some, there's some pieces of this class that are, are kind of proprietary or that you need to go through that you should experience and not be told about. But, but the problem solving leadership course with Jerry Weinberg and Esther Derby, very interesting class, seems like it uh, had an, an interesting effect on you. Just what are your thoughts on that? How'd it go? And, and let's dig into it a bit. Well, wow. so first things first, uh, it was a couple weeks ago now, and what I had been prepared for from other folks who had attended and told me about it is that you may not realize everything that you learned from it for years. You may, you know, years will go by and you'll, you'll keep encountering situations where something that you acquired during problem-solving leadership turns out to be a learning that you have in your head that you can apply. And the way you discover it is by being in those situations. So in other words, when I come out of that workshop, just dead, tired, exhausted, not sure what I learned, that doesn't mean that I didn't. It just means that I don't know yet. And I can look forward to discovering as I go along what, what I came away with. What I have is uh, a couple guesses about what that might be. First of all, if I if I had gone much earlier in my career, I would have had no business being there. Just the, the kind of learning environment that it was and the kind of awareness that it requires. Uh, I didn't have those things and I wouldn't have been equipped to learn from those situations. It just would have been pressure and no benefit. And had I come, I think, later in my career than now, I'm really not sure what I would have taken away. And so I feel like I'm, I'm in a kind of a middle range where I'm not sure what to expect because I didn't see a lot different about myself or about the ways that I behave that I'm aware of. So I'm not sure what the learning, what the takeaway is. What I can say is that absolutely hands down, it was extremely well run. There were very high caliber people there that I'm very happy that I met. Esther and Jerry among them, that it reinforced for me. Uh, I don't know if it's learning or if it's reinforcement. Uh, it's something that I've always valued. There is a distinction between being in the problem, uh, observing how the problem is being solved, and designing how the problem can be solved. And usually when I'm thinking at these multiple levels and moving between them, because each of them validates or invalidates the other, uh, and also you know, rejiggers the whole lay of the land so you can solve the problem. Usually when I'm thinking in that way, I'm not being joined in that kind of thinking by the people around me. It's rare that I've worked with people who do that as well. And at Problem Solving Leadership, that was not only a behavior that was shared by a lot of my fellow attendees, it was a behavior that was modeled repeatedly and consistently by Esther and Jerry that there's solving the problem, there's designing a problem, and there's designing an environment in which to solve the problem. 
And these are all things that as managers or leaders or consultants or people who are trying to solve problems, we would do better if we master them. So that was a, it was a reinforcement for me because it's a behavior that I like to have. And it was pretty enjoyable to see expert application of it that wasn't me. So it sounds like it's uh, definitely two thumbs up for that class. It's, it's a class I hope I'm able to take, maybe not this year, but perhaps next, and, and get into and, and learn some of those mental models. And I'm, I'm especially intrigued by the, the idea of creating problems as a means to solve problems. That seems like a, it's one of those meta concepts that I, I'm sure it's more concrete when you're doing the exercises, but it's just something that's always caught my attention. I've always thought, wow, do I really want to pose problems to people in order to solve other problems. Yeah, it's it's more about designing problems for the people that you want to solve to solve. So it's right. it's to do with delegation uh, instead of instead of giving any problem as it exists right now. Think about what it would take to solve it for the people that you're trying to give it to, and is that a nice amenable environment for them, or do you need to design it a little bit differently before you hand it off? So I'm sure that you have a ton of experience with that in your role. And you would you would bring a lot of practical insight as an attendee and maybe would have some immediate takeaways if you were to take a class like that. Yeah, it just seems like it's it's all around intentional leadership. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just delegating or handing out tasks. It's really looking that next step forward and saying, is this going to lead to a positive outcome or do I need to re slant this problem just a little bit and add a different perspective to make sure it it resolves in a in a more logical or a more enjoyable way. So, yeah, I'm definitely intrigued by it. I'm, you know, encouraged by your positive comments on it and by George's recommendation. And it, so I, it just sounds like a great thing. We'll put a, a link in the show notes to the class. I think they're running another one in September, but it uh, certainly sounds like a neat experience. Another experience you tweeted about that I was following anxiously, be, I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't make it to this conference, was Agile Roots. Seems like you had an excellent experience there. I uh, actually got to give a few talks, I believe, and maybe you can go into those for us. And I would love to hear about how your talks went. I know you partnered with Lisa Crispin on at least one of them. And it, from the sounds of the tweets or from reading the tweets, it looks like you guys just nailed it. And it uh, seems like everyone involved was happy. So how did that go? And, uh, you know, help me uh, or make me feel a little bad or even worse about missing Agile Roots as you as you discuss it. I can do that very quickly. I love <laughs> Agile Roots. I've never felt so included at every turn and so comfortable at any conference that I've been to. Part of that is to do with the way that I found out about it, which is that uh, Alan Daly, who was also uh, consulting in Columbus when I first started at this job and was in Columbus, we had dinner, we got to know each other a little bit. And a bit later on, he pointed out that, hey, Agile Roots seems like the kind of conference that you in particular would enjoy. He had been to it and he thought that I should know about it. So it was kind of on my radar as a personalized recommendation. Then it came to pass that Lisa had put out a call on Twitter for anybody who's fairly new to conference speaking. If they'd like a pair, she's open to it. And I am fairly new to conference speaking. At the time, I, you know, I had known her a little bit from a little bit of pairing that we'd done on a, a program she was working on. And so I guess she was she knew what she was getting into when she offered me in particular. And so we were putting together a workshop, which is nothing that I have a lot of experience with, but she does. She's run many workshops. She knows how to facilitate. And uh, and she's, you know, she's already an invited speaker at Agile Roots. So I felt like I'm in good hands putting together a proposal with this person. 
if it's accepted, I'm in good hands running this workshop with this person. And so already, even before I was ever accepted, I felt like this is a conference that somebody said I should care about. And somebody who really knows what they're doing is helping me put a proposal together. Uh, I already am feeling comfortable. And then, you know, it was accepted. And the experience report that I submitted was also accepted. Uh, not a lot of people who were speakers there gave more than one talk. I'm one of the few that did. So it feels like an, a special honor on top of the fact that if you walk into that speaker room, those are some really well-known, really bright, really articulate, and just nice people to talk to. Just to be in that group in any way, to be accepted into it, and then to be there and participate in it as a full member. I felt so welcomed and so included. And the conference isn't huge. It's a couple hundred people attending, uh, not a ton of vendors. The, the conference space feels like if you designed a conference space to feel like a mansion where there's stairs in strange places and a few different floors and rooms of different shapes. But it's kind of like a mansion, but it's really a conference center. It's just a, the scale was right. The, the family feeling was extremely welcoming. And I'm just honored to have been included, and it's the best conference experience I've had so far. And now I really hate missing it. So it works. I, I knew I could do it. You did it. No, it was great. Yeah, I saw it earlier in the year, and I, I looked at it, and I just I weighed up a few different ones, and I thought, oh, I've already booked a few, and now I'm just kicking myself for missing it because it looks like it was just amazing. I actually saw Pat Maddox tweet out earlier today that over 40% of the tickets were sold before they announced a single speaker, which to me, and, and I think he noted this too, means that, wow, they really... Uh, have something special there. If people are investing, are willing to put down their cash without even knowing who's speaking, it just must be such an excellent culture that they're willing to show up and network and, and be with people even without knowing exactly what they're in for as far as sessions go. That was another highlight of Agile Roots for me is that I got to meet Pat in person. Pat's done a lot for me in my career and he knows it and I got to thank him in person and uh, it was a, it was a real treat to get to hang out with him a little bit. You know, it's, it's interesting. I had the same experience out in Las Vegas a few weeks ago. I was speaking out at the uh, Agile Development Conference. The BSC ADC was the hashtag for that. It's uh, TechWell. It's their uh, Better Software Conference West. And uh, I got to, to meet up with Bob Galen, who joined us a few episodes ago, and uh, meet him in person, had a nice lunch with him, had a, multiple conversations. And as it turned out, from a scheduling perspective, my talk was the last one of the last day. So I'm the last talk that's going to happen at the conference. And so Bob ended up coming to that talk. So you have, you have one of your agile heroes sitting in the back row that, so that added a little pressure. And then Chris Sims, another uh, well-known uh, scrum trainer, author, great thinker in the community wandered in and, and joined Bob in the back. So I've got two of the, the more advanced thinkers in, in our community sitting in the back, listening to this talk and, so, but it was a great experience because they joined in and we were able to collaborate a bit and talk to, to Chris and Bob afterwards. And it's just neat to be able to meet some of these people that that you talk to on Twitter, you read their books, you, you correspond through email, you go back and forth, and all of a sudden it's living, breathing people and you're having just a great time as if you've known each other for years, sitting back and talking and just a really neat experience that I think this social media has brought to to our world. You know, it's a you know, we've met once in person. We talk constantly online through Twitter and, and Skype and, and all these conversations. And it feels like we can just sit back and have these conversations as if we've known each other for years. And it's really just been a few months, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just one of those, those neat dynamics that, uh, 
that's new to me, uh, going on this conference circuit and, and meeting some of the people that I've talked to for years on Twitter face-to-face. And so that was a lot of fun, a similar experience, I think, to what you had at Agile Roots. But also even out in Vegas, that conference experience was just excellent. So TechWell puts on a good show. You know, it's a little it's a little bigger than Agile Roots, and it's a different type of community. I think it's more geared towards the vendors. There's a lot of tool vendors out there. There's a lot of you know, IBM's got a booth, and so there's a lot of the big players. But it also has you know some of the you know that has the Bob Galens and the Chris Sims who show up and who are just down to earth and and great. And it just has that that smallish feel, but there's a lot of people there. So it was a really nice environment uh, and really well done and just again, like you were saying, it's just an honor to be able to go to those events and speak at them because this is like you, my, my first year going around and speaking at these conferences and having these, you know, these high end people accept you and talk to you and, and go through these, um, these talks with you and then give great feedback afterwards. It's just very validating. So I think we're having very similar experiences down different tracks and it's, it's really just joyful. It, It really fills me up. Zach Boniker and I were talking about this Again, I keep referencing past episodes, but he was saying that he'll hear these stories that fills his tank. And, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what, those moments just fill up the tank and it, it gets you through some of those low points. And it, it's certainly been, and I think for both of us, a series of high points lately. It definitely has. Uh, speaking of feedback that you got on your talk, we got a very interesting piece of feedback, Lisa and I, on the workshop that we did, which was called DevOps Dojo. I don't really know the first thing about DevOps in practice. I just know that I've been a sysadmin. I've been a developer. I try to exercise empathy in designing, you know, one tool for the other to use and vice versa. But what I do know about DevOps is, you know, nothing in particular about Docker or what have you, but that working together works better. And working together was the theme of Agile Roots this year. So what we put together was this exercise with uh, really, really an artificial restriction where we had this, this program that was dev and we had this production process that was ops and it was, it was printing address labels. So you run this program, you give it a data file of CSV and it's supposed to print labels that we could send out catalogs to the people that want to buy our products. And the artificial restriction is that dev writes the program with an initial set of data and then ops has to run it in production with a slightly updated data file that is a little bit more complicated all of a sudden than the code can handle. So the label will come out wrong or you know won't print right or something. And so we go through a couple iterations where we force dev and ops not to share what they know, not to share the data, not to share the code, and try it before they go to production, but to screw it up in production because they weren't working together. And that turns out to be just enough exercise to get people really talking about how not artificial this experience is and that it's exactly like things they've really experienced. And we heard a lot of stories and I told the story as well. Um, And then we let them for the last iteration work together. This wasn't even really a programming exercise. We encouraged people who were ops to be the dev and who were dev to be the ops. And when they would make a change to the code, it was basically a one line change that I had pre-cooked for them and I put on the projector. So the point was, go through the exercise, be frustrated by it, let's talk about it, now let's work together better. And at the end, uh, Lisa facilitated a brainstorming session where we came up with a bunch of ideas that we could take back to our workplaces about working better together that were not limited to dev and ops. Uh, It worked just as well for the idea of testers and devs, really anyone, BAs, POs, everybody can work together better 
And uh, I'm hoping that she will write that up soon. I'm looking forward to her blog post about it. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when you just reach across the org. And that seems to be a common, t- at least theme lately, in a lot of talks and posts that I've been been reading. And maybe I'm causing that through my own searches. But it just seems like the more we're able to to break through those silos, reach across the org, and, and work with the different groups, the better the outcomes. And that seems so basic. It's common sense, right? But in, when you go to work the next day, it's like, well, you got to work with the DevOps team, or nope, you got to go to web hosting, and nope, security's got to be over here. And it's all these silos of, of people through these gated checks that you're working through. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Why aren't we tearing this down, pairing up, and getting through this quicker? And it's... Uh, it's a basic thing. It's a common sense thing. But in, in all practice, it, you may as well be on Mars trying to pull it off. Maybe it isn't common sense. It seems like it should be. But if it were, then we wouldn't be talking about it. We'd just obviously do it. It seems to take right. an uncommon kind of sense to point out that the fiefdoms that we've constructed and the boundaries that we've placed around ourselves might be hurting us, even though uh, some people who are playing this game are trying to consolidate power that's not what everybody in the game is trying to do. And at least in theory, that's not what the organization is trying to do. So maybe it's pretty uncommon after all, and that's why nobody does it. But I think people wrap around in their justifications for these silos that they can control things better, they have better visibility, it's easier to manage. There's all these things that that in management we tell ourselves that, no, this is the right thing because I can ensure outcomes are better. And it's wrong-minded. I mean, it's, it's, it's an illusion of control that, that we're, we fight through, whether it's, it's estimates or silos or, or whatever it is we're doing. It's this illusion that, that we, can, we can will an outcome to happen as opposed to, well, the alternative is trust, right? We build up silos and process so we don't have to trust. The alternative is we have to trust intelligent people to do the right thing. And that's the part... And that's to me, is a smell. When you see the silos, you see the processes that are very heavy, and you don't see people standing up over the cubicle wall and talking, there's something going on there that there's a lack of trust or, or another related issue that, that is causing that kind of behavior. Does that resonate with you at all? It does. Uh, and trust is expensive and risky. It's just that it might be less expensive and risky than the other <laughs> strategies. But... Uh, People in corporate environments uh, typically have modeled for them untrusting kind of behavior. And on the occasions that you see trusting kind of behavior, every now and then you see someone get burned by it in a way that's pretty painful. And so even if people are uh, open and trusting in their personal lives, they, they have this other context that business is different and it doesn't pay off to be open and trusting in business. And you have to guard yourself and defend yourself because somebody, whether they're out to get you or not, they may let you down. And you have to be prepared for that before it happens. Yeah, it just seems like the behaviors of others create the systems that that constrain us. But the flip side is that every single one of us, as bound as we are by those systems, has the capacity to act outside of them. It's not easy. It's maybe one of the harder things that exists. But we are all free enough, if we see what's going on, to try playing the game a different way. Yeah, it's certainly, it's neat to to hear these ideas. We start with its common sense, but in all practicality, so difficult to pull off. 
but what I have found and what's consistent across my career is that the more that I've tried to bring people together, the greater success I've enjoyed. And, and it's just because I've stepped back and decided I can't be smarter than a group. I'm not that bright, right? And there's probably plenty of people listening to this right now going, yes, he's right. <laughs> he's not that bright. But it, it's really, it's just come down to the realization that I can't wrap my brain, I can't get my brain to go my brain to go past the idea that I'm smarter than the whole group. And so why would I ever work in a way that would silo them off? And that would, you know, that would create fiefdoms of, of command and control when together we do so many things so much better. Well, if your goal is, you know, the, the, to solve the claimed problem, to produce the claimed outcome, the thing that we're all having meetings about and making backlogs about and making stories about, then yeah, that's the best way. I, f I discovered this the hard way in big organizations. There are a lot of people who are paying lip service to the claimed problem and the claimed outcome, and they're merely using this as a platform to advance themselves, which in a big organization especially is a complicated enough system that the one can be at the expense of the other, maybe has to be. And so here I am naively going along trying to make this a really ordered backlog and follow it really carefully with respect to the priority and negotiate between all these different potential customers that want something from me based on what I think is best for the product and best for the business. And that may be only one of the things that's going on there. Maybe the other thing going on there is these people are jostling for, you know, whoever can get me to do something has acquired some, some power and influence. And the more power and influence they get garner, the further up the org chart they go. And maybe that's what they're doing. And I found in practice that it, it didn't pay to be naive, which I had originally been about focusing only on the problem and the thing that people are saying. There was always more going on than that. And if I tried to ignore that, it would come back to bite me. So It's certainly a factor. And it's one that you have to keep an eye on. But I find, for the most part, that people are benevolent in the workplace. And maybe that's my naivety and perhaps someday I'm going to get burned by that. But I have found that there are a few kingdom builders out there, but for the most part, we're all trying to feed our kids. Yeah. Right? You know, what I learned from that workplace is something that I basically already knew, which is that it was the wrong kind of workplace for me. And right. that's why I am where I am now. Uh, it also prepared me very well to consult for big companies that could be complicated, but it made extra clear that Based on who I am and how much effort it takes me just to be cognizant of that second game, I don't want to be involved in organizations that are doing that. I'm happy to consult for them, uh, and I want to be part of organizations that are for real. Yeah, and I think that's important. I've, I've certainly worked in toxic environments, and it, not only is it just exhausting, but I think it's soul-draining as well. You just come out of it a shell of, of who you were and... You know, there's not enough money in the world that, uh, well, maybe there is, but there's not enough money they're willing to pay you that, that's worth that kind of, the years that it takes away from you. You know, you age a lot quicker in those environments. The stress is just insane. And you're absolutely right. Those toxic environments where anything but, you know, staying in your box is, is unhealthy, just it doesn't work out well. And I, I do have to be thankful for that experience. Uh, it's, it's something that I touched on at the beginning and end of my experience report at Agile Roots, that being in a situation where I was on a delivery team and leading a delivery team 
in an environment where it was painful to do that, even when we were doing it really well uh, and not being appreciated for it and not being recognized for it and having obstacles placed in my way. Uh, it gives me a lot of empathy for teams that are in that situation. And it makes it really important for me for a while not to be in that situation. And so that's the way that I felt from that experience is I learned a ton about how to coach teams that are stuck in situations like that. And it made me want to coach instead of be on the team. So it has a lot to do with the career change that I made. I have to be thankful for it. When you have those, those toxic environments, when you have people that are, and again, I don't, I, in my experience, it's not often, but you do have the people building the kingdoms. I try to include everyone and make the work visible. Right. And that typically takes care of most of the issues. It's a great diffuser. I think that there's a saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And in many of the cases on a project, when, when people are in throwing up roadblocks, when things are getting tricky, if you just pull everyone in, include management, include everyone up and down the chain that's willing to participate and say, here's everything and put it on the wall, it tends to make those activities go away quickly. I definitely used that technique when I was having trouble deciding what goes above what on the backlog. Somebody brings something in new you know, they're an executive director or somebody else is a managing director. I'm an associate. And my job as the product owner is to say no, or we'll do that in two years, or we'll do that never. Uh, right. They don't want to hear that from me. They'll go up the chain. But what often did help was, well, I'll tell you what, here's the backlog. You can look at it. Uh, you see the first one on there? If you want to be in front of that, here's the person to talk to. If you can get them to agree, then sure, yeah. And they couldn't say that that was wrong and they often didn't bother having that conversation and they might still try to go over my head but it kind of set the tone that frankly it's not my call because you're not going to accept it if i make it right but here's you know it's up to you guys and if you can have that struggle with that guy then i'll listen to the result and the other thing that that typically helped was it's a really advanced tool are you ready for this a piece of yarn yeah so you put you have your backlog on the wall and you put the piece of yarn at where the, the current sprint leaves off. Basically, if you have 10 cards going down the wall and your current sprint's going to deliver three, the yarn goes under card number three. And so when, they, when someone comes in with their, their trump hammer and they decide that this card is going to go above everything else, you say, that's fine. You put their card on top and move the string up one slot. And they say, all right, you need to talk to the person whose card just bumped to the next sprint and see what value what value is going to be missing from this current sprint that you just modified. And it seems to end a lot of those conversations quickly. I'm skeptical based on what I saw of the premises in these people's heads that developers can always accept more work into the same unit of time. They'll just work harder. We'll squeeze them harder. They're not working that hard in the first place. So just add one more thing. It doesn't mean trading right. anything off. That was one of the, the fallacies that I ran into repeatedly. But if it does help, great. Maybe I, maybe I should have tried something physical like that. No, there are those misconceptions out there that, oh, developers are padding. Developers are, are not being honest about their estimates. Developers are slacking. Hey, they're sitting at the keyboard. They're not even typing. What's going on? So that was one of the things <laughs> right? that was in my experience report as well, is that the way that our XP practices evolved at this environment that we're talking about started from instant legacy code that I had inherited with tons of copying and pasting. Uh, but it was it was solving a real problem that hadn't been solved before, and they wanted to expand it considerably. And so my first order of business was making this testable 
so that I can test drive and increase coverage because we're going to have to live with this for years. It's going to, and it's, it's got security properties that are pretty sensitive, so we can't make a mistake. And there's no QA people. So the way it started was simple legacy code refactoring and, and getting TDD in place. And then we got to where we had something that looked sort of like a backlog, except there weren't really stories and there weren't any points. And there was no real rhyme or reason to it. And we didn't have any kind of iterations. And what we did get to because of a story where I earned trust with the ops team, this is part of my experience report, we were able to get to where we had been delivering into production every three to six months because there's always a huge gateway in big corporate environments between proposing something for production and having it accepted into production. It was a big involved process. And so we got from three, three to six months per release to every month because the person who would make the go, no go decision had paired with us on a new feature and had written it and had seen uh, the side effect of the failing test cases in some other area of the code that was caught in dev before it was even committed. So he understood extremely well why what we were doing was so safe and why we could ship whenever we claimed we were ready to ship, which was all the time. And so we got to monthly releases, which is about as close to continuous delivery as you can get in an environment where your software runs on the Kerberos servers <laughs> in a big corporate environment. Uh, so we were pretty proud of that. But observers looked sort of with mild interest that we were seeing seeming to play this game where instead of having to write a fixed manifest of what's going to be in a release and then develop exactly what's in the manifest and then inevitably slip the schedule but then put that in production exactly as it was stated, that's not the only way to do it. We were doing whatever's ready on Friday every month is going in Friday night that month. And so that was just kind of curious. Like nobody wants to change what they're doing to work that way. It's just... It's just interesting to see that the rules permit playing in that way. But what really shifted their understanding was what you're talking about with, with predictability and, and all that is that we got a huge project that we were required to deliver by a fixed date that was not up to us. And it was not up to us to accept or reject the project. It was our project. Um, and that's when we got the Scrum basics. That's when we got a project backlog because it was the only thing we were going to be working on for the eight months. And we got points and we got velocity and we figured out pretty early on that it's possible. And when the velocity started to tank, we knew exactly who was the offender and we went to, to bat against them. And we shipped with five minutes to spare on an eight month project, knowing all along exactly where we were. And that started to get a lot more interest because now we're playing the same game, apparently extremely well. And that's when people wanted to know more about what is this TDD thing? What is this scrum thing? based on the fact that in a, in a project scenario, which is a very common scenario in that kind of environment, apparently we could also bring it home in that situation. Yeah, it, it's interesting how success breeds that, that curiosity, which in my experience has transformed into trust. So eventually in those scenarios, you end up with product owners and management who say, all right, they're consistently delivering it's almost to the point to where they start trusting their estimates a little more because they know that you're hitting a certain cadence and some of the constraints magically disappear. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon where people say, well, wait a minute. They were able to get through that without whatever constraints or whatever safety harness they've put around this process and they were successful, they were safe and, and it went live and, and the world didn't end. 
And that, to some people, I think is a huge eye-opener. And that's, that was one of the data points in my talk, is that we, in about three and a half years of monthly releases, we had to roll back once, and that was due to uh, poor management decisions prior to that that we anticipated having a possible impact. And so we prepared by having a, a better rollback plan than normal, and we wound right. up needing it. And every so, other release that we put in every month was fine. But at least you had the rollback that they could count on. <laughs> exactly. You there, JB? I am hoping. There we are. There's JB. All right. Oh, you're not in Canada right now, are oh, you? Oh, no, I am. I'm in Vancouver. Ah. Wrong end. Very nice. The wrong end. Exactly. That's the wrong end. <laughs> Say hello to Vancouver, everyone. Well, JB, thanks for joining us on such short notice. No problem. Glad I could do it. Awesome. Awesome to get to talk to you again. We've been talking about the silos that people build and reaching across organizations and some experiences with that. Covered a little bit about Agile Roots. And Amitai went through the problem-solving leadership class with uh, Uh, Esther Derby and Jerry Weinberg. Are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with PSL, but I've never done it. I uh, I went to uh, the Amplifying Your Effectiveness conference uh, three years uh, about, I guess, oof, boy, a long time ago by now. But uh, so I got to do, I got to have the experience. It's the only conference I've ever been to where um, the rule of thumb seemed to be that if you didn't cry at least once during the conference, then you weren't really participating. Yikes! Yeah, there was some crying was, it, at PSL. It is, it is an emo- it was an emotional, uh, draining. Uh, uh, it's it's probably the hardest introspection I've ever allowed myself to do with other people present. It seems like you're just tearing yourself open emotionally and just letting all that flow out. Uh, there was some of that, uh, added to that was uh, Jerry used to, uh, moderate a forum, uh, called, uh, shape, which if I remember correctly was software as a human activity practiced effectively. And, uh, so it was, it, it, it felt, it felt a little bit like an extension of the conference of PSL of sort of his community. And so at the end of the AYE conference, he would have a shape day where people would come who are members of the shape forum uh, and would just get together for the day and have a free flow exchange of ideas. And uh, one of those times I asked what I thought was a rather innocent question. And Jerry looked right at, my, right at me and said, well, I'm not interested in that question. I'm interested in the question behind the question. And it's no word of a lie that 15 minutes into that discussion, I was weeping openly. I don't know who it was that was there that was holding on to me for dear life. And it was one of those, uh, one of those career and life-changing experiences. I still can't believe I let myself go through, but uh, it was, it, it, oddly enough, was part of the fun. But at any rate, it sounded like the, the, the question about PSL was mere preamble to what you were going to say. Oh, no, not at all. I'm just curious if you were familiar with it. Yeah. I think it was a great experience for Amitai. George Dinwiddie shared a little bit about it, too on one of the past episodes and it seems like everyone has a unique experience but it always comes back to at some level being profound for people i was hoping to crack myself open in the way that you were saying you had i guess i'm things have been very comfortable for me for a while and that makes me nervous when i'm when i'm willing to think about the (laughs) fact that that should make me nervous and i was hoping to be uncomfortable and look my shortcomings in the eye because i've got plenty of them 
One of them is that I don't like to look at them. <laughs> and, uh, I just, I didn't Obviously, it's care. not a bottleneck, man, so don't worry about it. Well, there you go. I, some of them I'm not sure about. But it'll, so, it'll, be, it'll become yeah. urgent when it becomes urgent. I feel like that's an enabling idea, and I don't need any enabling about it. <laughs> that's funny. So it seems like we're... In the next we're, we're, minutes doing then, should, is our goal to make sure that Amitai cries at some point during this, uh, during this show? This office is challenging. There's nobody here to hug. I'm in trouble if I have... Oh. Challenge accepted. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. <laughs> don't, uh, don't electrocute yourself on the microphone. You'll be fine. I think we've all had those moments in the office where you just have that, that mind-altering uh, or that change in mindset, and those are special, and I, I wouldn't trade them for the world. I mean, you walk away from thinking, I can't believe I just did that, but yeah, I, I think those are great. And if you haven't had one, I think, JB, it's kind of back to your comment about uh, the Amplify Your Effectiveness conference. You know, if you haven't had one of those, maybe you're not engaged enough. Yeah, it just it 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 really I wasn't prepared for it. I don't think I've ever as high trust an environment with like more than three people, none of whom were related to me, uh, as I experienced at at the the three years that I went to that event, which made it even worth you know going to Phoenix for it. So I'll tell you what, there's a topic that uh, yeah. Amitai teed up, and it's one that I'm. I have no experience with, but I'm very much interested in. And JB, I wonder if, if you've got some insights into this mob programming. Yes, a little bit. As it turns out, we have mob together online. Yes, yes. I so my, Online mobbing. My most recent mobbing experience uh, was with Ruby Steps. What, what, so for the listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you talk about Ruby Steps just real quick? Yeah, so Ruby Steps is the brainchild of uh, my good buddy Pat Maddox. Um, and he... It's sort of his answer to the question, I think I want to be a Ruby programmer. I've read a little bit of introductory, uh, introductory material on how to program in Ruby. What do I do now? And that, so that was, you know, he, he decided that he wanted to figure out if he could run an ethical Ruby programmer factory. And so it seems like that's what he's trying to do. And so he, as part of the program, one of the first things he started to do was um, was to uh, create space for a handful of people to program together in uh, in the what seems to be the Woody Zool mob programming format, which uh, is a lot different from what I remember when we first started to talk about pair program with n greater than 2 15 years ago. Uh, we didn't have the good sense to give it a good marketing name, but we always thought, well, if pair programming is good, then what happens if there's more than two people? We kind of thought, well, more than two people and people start getting in the way and there's somebody who kind of gets a little bit pushed off to the side because we sort of had in mind three, but we never really thought about six or eight. And uh, so this resurgence of mob programming is kind of interesting. It, it seems like it really shouldn't work. But if learning truly is the bottleneck, then mob programming will, will accelerate the team converging towards working together in a way that nothing else does. I shouldn't say nothing else. I mean, there's probably something better. but Got to be. Well, there, yeah, exactly. By definition, there has to be. But yeah, so Hashtag that, you know, no anything else. <laughs> oh no stop not it. another hashtag stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box ruh, ruh. <laughs> well so but what yeah, you're saying so, about uh, mobbing as a, as a learning tool I have just started an experiment with the team that I'm coaching at this client uh, they have a lot of needs 
they it's not only you know TDD and other craftsmanship practices that they need. There's there's more basic stuff going on too, and there's been a lot of changes to the membership of the team. So it seems like a prime opportunity to oh, yeah. reformulate how they fit together and how they work together. And everybody needs to learn something about the system they work on, me included. And so as of last week, it's been a week now, we're doing an experiment with mob programming. What was surprising for me was that when I went to the team Scrum Master in advance of this and said, what do you think? My read is that they have enough trust and they have enough problems and this might be worth an experiment. And his response, I, I thought I was going to need to persuade him. He said, no, we worked that way in the 90s on a small talk project when there was a bug. <laughs> we all, all 10 of us would get together and do it. Yeah, it sounds great. Let's do it. It all comes back to small talk. Isn't that funny? Well, and that's if great. It, Ken and Beck is... If it doesn't come back to small talk, it comes back to, well, that's the way we used to do it before... Exactly. Before someone in the early 80s decided that somehow programming was just about writing code and then letting somebody else figure out if it worked and letting else someone else figure out what we're supposed to build as opposed to, you know, the stories I hear about programmers in the 60s and 70s who did it all themselves. And so they had to know how to do everything. They had to know how they, they were the, the first generalizing specialists and they did. And they, yeah, and they did it all. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there at the time, obviously. So I, I don't know why it came to be that way, but uh, I'm just so happy that it took only 20 years to rediscover how to do things sensibly instead of the, you know, hundreds of years it usually takes to, you know, uncover or rediscover ancient wisdom. So the dark ages passed quickly and now we can get back to good work, right? Yes, <laughs> I suppose so. I remember distinctly there was a dude, I wish I could remember his last name, uh, Brian something. He, um, uh, this was back at the very dawn of the xp toronto user group so this would have been 2000 i guess 2001 and i remember talking to him at length he was the guy who told me that if if he were if he were kent beck he would have called it humane programming instead of extreme programming and we had long long discussions about what would what would pair work be like if n was greater than two what if it was actually more than two people working on problems at the same time and it started with discussions about programming but it went on to discussions about modeling and planning and all that kind of stuff and and it just kind of seemed like an obvious thing and i never had the opportunity to do any of this stuff because you know by that point either i was working at ibm and was stuck doing work on my own or i was out working as a technology trainer and you know everything i did was in an artificial classroom environment so nobody ever took any of it seriously 2000 and i want to say five i think i was at a conference i don't even remember which one and I ended up chatting with Ward Cunningham and Elizabeth Hendrickson. And then we just said, well, let's, let's look at the code. And so it was this really strange situation where Ward was sitting in front of me on my left and Elizabeth was sitting in front of me on my right. And I was sitting behind them in between them. And we weren't quite mobbing. But what was happening was Ward and Elizabeth were pairing a little bit. I was pairing with Ward talking more about design issues and Elizabeth and I were pairing talking more about testing issues. And I was sort of playing the role of the part-time programmer, part-time tester. And so I would, you know, Ward would say something and we would talk about it a little bit and then he would start typing and then I would turn and talk to Elizabeth and we would talk a little bit about how we were going to test it. And then that gave us the feedback for what that gave us the idea of what to do next. And then Ward and I would talk about how to build it. And it kind of went back and forth like that. So it was almost like I was the, I was playing a dual role 
even though I never touched the keyboard. At no point did I actually lean forward to type anything in because whatever I was able to say to Ward, I was able to express myself well enough that he and I understood what we what each of us were saying and he could type it in. And then Elizabeth and I were talking back and forth and we had sort of an idea. And this was amazing for me because I was learning both about programming and about testing at the same time, just sitting and doing something more active than listening to them, but less active than mobbing the way that the way that it, um, people seem to be talking about doing it now. And that was an interesting experience to me. That was the first time I ever really did something that was like pairing, but with more than two people. I always thought that was neat. I learned a whole lot. I don't know whether they learned anything from me, but it certainly seemed like it accelerated my learning in the you know 30 minutes we did it. And I thought, you know, if I worked like that four or five hours a day, I'd be a genius in three weeks. Well, how could you ever have a junior programmer after a few months? Right. I mean, it would just be phenomenal. And you could actually take a vacation. Yes. Well, that was, <laughs> oh man, the very first, uh, the very first pair programming session I was ever in at a conference was with Lori Williams. And she asked, why do you guys, why are you guys interested in pairing? And I just immediately threw my hand up and said, I want to get sick. I want to go home. <laughs> I want to be on vacation. Uh, yeah, it's amazing when you spread knowledge that uh, you can actually take a week off of work and not carry a cell phone or a laptop. It's yeah. just funny how that works out. Absolutely. Uh, I can see I, why I, if, that's, uh, if that's how you did uh, N equals 3, that thinking about N equals 6 or 8 would be prohibitive. Right. So it never occurred to me. I mean, we'd, we'd, I'd seen carousel programming before. So we would essentially do ping-ponging with three people and then the chairs would just rotate in a circle, right? I, I guess that's mobbing. I just didn't realize at the time that, I mean, really the difference between that and what Woody calls mobbing now, what sort of is becoming known as mob programming, is that instead of doing it with a time, instead of rotating based on a timer, we rotated based on red, green, red, green, red, green. So it was ping-ponging with three. And of course, we sort of, you know, we got the idea, well, we could ping-pong with four. Hell, you could ping-pong with 12 if you really wanted to. It just kind of seemed like the kind of thing nobody would volunteer to try to do. Like, it just seemed like it would be too weird for anybody to try. Initially, it just feels like the larger group, it would turn into spectator programming. Right. So you have a lot of disengaged people perhaps paying attention and maybe two or three actually working. But I think he's got a model around it where he has large groups engaged. And I think there's a few videos out there that I've watched where it is fascinating to watch. Now, the person, what I, what I want to see is the video where... They're working in that manner, and the client paying the bill walks in and sees that. Mm -hmm. I want to see that reaction. It's like, <clears> so which one of these people am I paying right now? And Oh, it's all of them. Mm -hmm. But there's just one keyboard. <laughs> That's the discussion I want to see play out because I, I believe in, in the pairing, and I think that the three is interesting, uh, especially as, JB, you were talking, you're the conduit between development and test. Right. And that's a fascinating position because you're, you're able to speak to both sides and you're learning both sides and you're connecting two people that may not have connected. And that, that's, that's easy value to discuss and share. Ten people standing around a monitor or a projector on the wall watching two people code, that's trickier. Right. And, that, and that's the thing that I, you know, not, I haven't had the direct experience of doing that in an industrial setting. I mean, uh, one of the downsides to the kind of work that I do is that a lot of it really does happen in an artificial learning environment. You know, people know that I'm there for a short period of time. They have this picture in their head that they're supposed to, they're, they're supposed to squeeze as much new information out of me as possible. And so the idea of having six people sitting around a projector in a room 
you know, that's okay because that's not that much different from having 20 people sitting in a classroom style setup, all facing forward, watching me lecture with, you know, presentation slides, which I don't do anymore. But uh, it's a lot easier to sell that when people are in the mood of thinking of it as training. What I right. find, what I find strange, not strange necessarily, but what I find maybe a bit unfortunate is that companies are perfectly happy to spend some multiple of $10,000 to bring in an expert for a limited amount of time to do training, but that they're not willing to do that same kind of training with their people on a regular basis and not have to pay the expert a multiple of $10,000 to be there. I mean, just, you know, if, you're, if your team costs you, I don't know, $2,000 a day, then that team can sit and mob for two solid weeks, eight hours a day, for the same as it would cost to bring a trainer in for three days and pay them $20,000 in addition to your people being in the classroom. Right. So it's, it seems kind of like, at least at that level, it's kind of a no-brainer to me. And then if it turns out that after two weeks the team is so much, that knowledge on the team is so much better distributed after two weeks, then... It seems like a pretty obvious investment to me. But again, it's, you know, it's just so much easier to see that there's a teacher and a classroom and a curriculum and that that looks more like learning than six people sitting around a projector, four of them are scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, it's not obvious who the teacher is. We agree, the three of us might agree that that's perhaps equally and maybe even more effective but it just doesn't look like it. And I don't know how to make it look like it. I, so I don't know I've, how to change that point of view. It's a clash of worldviews. I think the thing that works, uh, based on what I've seen where I am, uh, we're not the first team to try mobbing. I actually saw another team across the building do it, and that's what gave me the idea to try it here. Um, what I heard from them was they went to program management and said, we want to try this new way of working. We're already kind of standing around a high top doing design together. What if we just moved over to a computer and continued? Maybe what's going to happen this iteration is that we get one story done. Maybe. So what wound up happening is that the one story that was actually pretty complicated, which made it a good choice for mobbing, they got it done in two or three days. They got five or six more stories done at the end of the iteration. It was pretty much just as good as it had been before, and then they were better after. So if you, just, if you can wait two weeks to see what happens with the experiment... It might already be obvious that it's valuable. And that's just in terms of delivery, never mind the learning. The learning is right. visible. So I think you guys just knocked out the economics behind mob programming, right? So if you have a, a fixed run rate on your team and you calculate it over two weeks and you, you get a, basically the ability to run that experiment, and let's say you get two or three sprints. So you have a, a two to six week investment uh, with a, a known run rate. And you can see very quickly, forgive me for using a dirty word called velocity, right? But if you can look at velocity, you can look at delivery, you can look at all these different things and decide, all right, did we improve or not? Exactly. And if you did, what a great investment. Right. And so if your velocity wasn't impacted negatively and the whole team is mobbing and quality either improved or stayed the same, but learning increased... Why wouldn't it be a great experiment? Right. Don't come in this room while we're mobbing if you're going to have an opinion about it. Wait till the iteration right. is over. See what your opinion is. So, yeah. and it's back to, and we talked about this last time, JB, it's the manifesto covers this. Working software is our only measure. I mean, that's, that's what we value 
And so any other any other consideration around, all right, so if they're mobbing, that must be bad. So work individually. Well, wait. The delivery was good. The working software is there, and it's no less uh, than what was than what we were doing prior to to this experiment. So why would we even look at that? Right, and and in fact, it's it's funny. One of the doc it just strikes me as you were saying that one of the documents that somehow has been lost to history, maybe even a more important document than the Agile Manifesto, was the the Charter of Rights and Responsibilities that went along with it. Um, and in the center of that was. Um, business people make business decisions and technical people make technical decisions and technical people don't make business decisions and business people don't make technical decisions. Somebody walks in and sees us mobbing. If they're doubtful about the results, that's okay. As long as they're willing to say, all right, you know, you've got a month uh, and if the results are terrible, I'm going to tell you to stop. But at least let us at least let us screw up before you tell us we've screwed up. You know, let us let us oh. fail before you tell us to do something else. Do we get self-organized or do we not get self-organized? And that's where exactly that's the question: Are we self-organizing or, or not? And if we're not, then then let's drop some other illusions as well. Oh, I'm I'm totally with you there. I mean, it's it's uh, it's especially pernicious for me to see these kinds of dynamics play out in environments where. Decision makers have at least made a show of delegating some stuff to the teams through saying we're going to go agile. I mean, there's an there's an implication in it that you're going to be delegating decision making down. That's part of that's part of the that's part of the, that's in the kit. That's in the toolkit. Uh, the more formalized approach to delegation that that management 3.0 teaches, I think, it could be helpful here um, to have a discussion about. What aspects of the way we build software, what kinds of decisions, uh, what's the degree of delegation down to the team? That, that could lead to some interesting discussions and could help us figure out that there might be fertile ground to try mobbing or that it's a non-starter. But then if somebody says, no, you're not allowed to try that, then you can point to the delegation scale and say, okay, well, what has to happen for us to be able to move up the delegation scale to the point where you then trust us to organize ourselves as opposed to directing our work. Um, again, we're back to clash of worldviews. Either, either the decision makers agree that a pull system leads to better throughput, or they don't. You can bash them over the head with copies of the goal until they're bloody, but at some point, either they believe that pull systems create better throughput, or they don't. And if I they have, do, then, then they, don't care what, they shouldn't care whether we're mobbing or not. I have a copy of that book in my desk, waiting for someone to be susceptible to it. I'm ready. I, I, think, I, 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 think I thought you were going to say waiting for waiting to beat somebody with it. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. That's a push system. I have a bloody copy of it sitting right here. Um, it amazes me that that there are people who think that they're justified in that level of control over how individuals do their work. I mean, uh, and to be fair, I've also seen tech leads. So you have developer on developer yeah, times as well, where. Where, do, where does the curly bracket go? Where does the semicolon belong? You yeah. know, how many t tabs or spaces? You know, even to that minutia. This yet? Come on. Doesn't <laughs> I, I just have the magic reformat according to Julie's preferences feature? Where is that? Yeah, it, it yeah. is interesting. And the idea around self-organization, I don't think it's always clear to people that that's what they're signing up for. That a team could go from... Yeah, we're going to self-organize and we're going to pull our own tasks and 
and it's all going to be right and good to, hey, we're working as a mob now. Right. And that that's a jump that I think is is a it's an eye opening experience for those who have agreed to self organization. But it's also an interesting experiment that if you deny you're you're giving up an ability to optimize the throughput of your team. And that's a hard, hard concept until you let a team do it. Maybe we should we should tag self-organization with being open to experimentation and make sure that's so not implicitly but explicitly clear when these things come up. Well, I think there's, yeah, there, I mean, self-organization, I think, at least deals with both um, experimentation and, and delegating decision-making down. It's constant experimentation, right? If you stick together long enough, the amount of experimentation probably goes down over time, maybe. That makes sense. The changing the meaning of standard work. That standard work stops being about standard steps of work, moves towards standard of work, as in our standards of work. And that we adopt a much more fluid way of working, where we sort of become like proficient practitioners on the Dreyfus scale. We just sort of we figure out what needs to be done and we figure out how to do it and then we just do the right thing as opposed to following a program or following a set of rules or any of that kind of stuff that we just sort of – we end up in the right place at the right time doing the thing that needs to be done, figuring out what needs to happen to make that happen. That's what um, I've been doing I, with the team that I'm mobbing with is that if, if you were to bring in Woody and say, does this look like what you think of as discipline mob programming? It doesn't. We're still figuring out how to do it. And so – I have to kind of bite my tongue and say, this isn't what I think, you know, a, a high functioning experience team looks like, but they're figuring out what they can figure out as they figure it out. And so my job is to let them be engaged as they are, which is itself special to watch and pick one thing at a time. If I want to suggest and coach them, that seems like the next thing they should work on if they haven't already figured out what it is and they're doing some of that. So like I could come in there and say, no, 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 my programming is where there's one person at the keyboard and you rotate and there's got to be testing. We're not doing anything like the testing I want to be doing. I just have to hold on, take a breath, let them learn the way they're learning because they are learning and they're learning very fast. I imagine it's hard not to look at those folks, see how they're progressing and then not get excited about where they can go next and say, now try this, now try this, now try this. And then you're, you turn on the fire hose of ideas and drown them. Uh, and and it, it must be really hard. You really do have to step back and say, rather than getting overly excited here, I can be a source of ideas about what they could do next. And when they when they look at each other and say, geez, we don't know what to try next, that's the time that I can speak up. Exactly. And uh, how, how oddly satisfying it'll be to go a year and not have made a suggestion. Someday. Yeah, what I do with the extra energy is that I step out of the room and find some other coaches and we just kind of, whoa, this is amazing. That's what happens. I try to keep it out of the room with the team. It's a shame that I don't take the time to see more of that stuff happen outside of an artificial learning environment. But at least I get to see it in, in training environments to a certain extent. It's a joyful moment. It's, a, yeah. it's one of those where you just step back and you, you take a deep amount of satisfaction in a moment that you helped foster. I look at it, you know, when, when my kids learn something, I look at it as the same way. It's, there's just something deeply satisfying about not even necessarily creating that moment, just getting to experience and witness it. Yes. That's exactly right. I've been with this team and, for months and, 
I wasn't sure exactly how I can make a big impact. Like where, where is the lever here that I can pull? As of a week ago, I know that I found it. It is definitely a joyful moment. Well, I, I, I have to say I'm, I'm happy for you and I'm uh, non-trivially jealous. You know, to be, to, coming back a little bit to the whole, you know, the, the image of, of somebody looking at, uh, like a stakeholder looking at us mobbing and thinking, what am I paying for? I just I go back to Arlo Belshi's paper, Promiscuous Pairing of Beginner's Mind. And granted, that was just an experience report and, and it's not, you know, it's not scientific research by any standard. But, you know, assuming that it has uh, application outside his team, you know, that, what, that that's, you know, the key result there was switching pairs every 90 minutes and the least qualified implementer stays. So whoever feels, whoever of the two feels less confident that they know what to do next is the one that should stay with that task and the other person leaves. It seems to me that mob programming is just taking that same idea and ratcheting the frequency of, at which you change pairs. That that's really all it is. You know, it, it generates different behaviors, but structurally that's the big difference. It's not that much different from going from waterfall to agile by just saying, well, we're going to increase the number of iterations uh, we're going to increase the frequency of iterations, and that changes uh, how long we get to work on any one particular phase. And then we find out that phases themselves, in fact, are uncomfortable at this speed, and so then we have to do something different. Instead of pairing with four different people in a day, I'm pairing with four different people all the time, every five minutes, every ten minutes. You know, and again, you look at that, and if you be- if you genuinely believe that learning is the bottleneck in product development, then you look at that and think, of course. And if you don't genuinely believe that learning is the bottleneck in product development, then you look at that and think, oh, my God, what are they doing? I can see my money flying out the window. You have to live it to believe it. And I, I think when you have management who's, who started as a programmer and then had some success at that and then came up through the ranks, there's more openness to this idea. And when, they're, when, you, when you have an MBA who's never actually written or who's never fired up Eclipse and, and used JUnit and had to do all these different things, all of a sudden you don't, you don't have the empathy, you don't have the experience, and, every, and, 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 and your devs are just a commodity. Yeah, so that simple. I wonder, too, almost at a, at a core level, so when I would pair program as a developer a number of years ago, it always felt like, especially on tasks that we were unsure about, which were always the most fun, right? We're not sure how to do this. We're writing the test. The tests aren't probing it well. It always felt like, you know, you're walking into the dark forest in the fairy tale. And if you had to do it alone, there's no way to do it. Right. But you have mm-hmm. your friend with you. And all of a sudden, it's, all right, let's tackle this. And I think just at that core level, that camaraderie of, of tackling a difficult task makes people faster. And you can't understand that until you've been in that situation. And even, uh, you know, even if it doesn't make you more than twice as fast as you would be if you worked alone, it still results in more stuff done sooner. And that's another, you know, then that gets to the whole sooner and faster thing that, you know, that, that it's, I don't actually care about being able to go through all the steps at a higher speed. I care about shortening the length of time between when I start and when I stop as measured by the calendar or the clock. Yes, there are some things where it's better to go faster more often than not. I mean, the fact that I type at a high 
speed helps me more often than it hurts me. Although it does occasionally let me get into trouble at a faster pace. Just again, the idea that uh, uh, eliminating eliminating wasteful steps saves us more than going faster does. Right. How much can we not do? Yeah, and 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 part of that is part of that is not just how much can we not do in terms. Of we not how much can we. Uh, you know, a mistake always costs more than going than doing it correctly slowly seems to do. You know, the mistakes hurt more. It costs more to make a mistake than it does to go slower but sure. Yeah, escape just, defects, they're so much harder to fix later. Yeah. And, and it costs more. You Now you're adding a phase and you have a run cost that, that that's taking you well past a budget or deliver sooner, not faster with a pair or with three or four or five with a higher quality, you have, it's also that joint responsibility. Yes. We're all going to make sure that we're delivering something that's of high quality, no matter who's at the keyboard, because we're mob programming and all of our names are on this. So this right. is exactly what came out of the workshop that Lisa and I did at Agile Roots. Uh, first of all, the, the artificial constraint on dev and ops working separately uh, turns out to be a really realistic one, but still stupid. And then uh, working together you can share the information and the knowledge and get where you're going. And the really interesting piece of feedback that we got, which I don't think I got to mention earlier, was from someone in the audience who said that it would be great if we could get managers and executives to go to a workshop like this, first to experience what the work is really like, as artificial as it was, uh, but you know, a development step and a production step and a development step and a production step. Really basic stuff, but just experience what it's like to have a bug and where that bug came from. And what was the gap in the thought process or the problem-solving process that permitted it to occur? And what was it like to be the person that did that? And what was it like to be the other person who was apparently responsible for that? And what if you didn't work that way? Just to have first-hand experience. I hadn't thought of that at all. I was very surprised when that was the feedback. That it would be great if we could bring some execs in to do a workshop like this. So maybe that's the answer to our worldview problem, is that the right workshop, if we could somehow manage to get it in front of the right people would give them, you know, a, an analogous experience that they then could see what we mean by learning as the bottleneck. Who takes a job because somewhere in the interview process they learn that the senior VP of development has read the goal and believes it? I, I, that, that to me now sounds like a standard, you know, when, when the interviewer turns to you and asks, do you have any questions for us, uh, you know, is there any gold rat on the bookshelves of your senior management? Um, have they read it? Um, you know what? Like what? What are the last three books the director of development read? I'd really like to know that. Um, that gives it's me funny a when I, there's a chance that that things might actually happen here. When when I interview, I actually look at the bookshelves of all the offices or in all the offices that I go to, and I do see the books on the shelves, and I do actually make a quick judgment based yeah. on the the literature well, that's too. there, and it. Uh, it, it is an interesting trick that that has served me pretty well. I've been able to assess a few times correctly that, wow, these are uh, these are miserable waterfall books. I need to get out of here, and uh, and in some cases it it just led to me to me to sorry it led me to believe that while the the processes I may not agree with the management was open minded right. And that that has worked out very well too. But yeah, the the books on the shelf are are critically important. Snooping in bookshelves has has served me well over a number of years now. 
I think the the next generation is ready for a refreshed view of XP. Yeah, I I, I think you know uh, it's it's ready. I think it's ready for a resurgence. Um, the philosophy, not the code. I I think the oh, yeah. coding is important, but actually getting these this new generation of developer up to speed with what Kent and uh, Ward and a number and Ron Jeffries and, and a number of others and you yourself, JB, you were a huge part of that movement, even though you stay modest and humble about it. I, th- I think the stuff that you guys laid out back in around 2000, 2001, 2002, when that was really emerging, or even prior to that with the small talk stuff, these ideas are new to these kids that are, that oh, are yeah. taking programming jobs now. And I, I think they need or would find useful the, the new version of that. Well, and you know, if, if we just kind of if we just kind of positioned it as hipster programming, maybe it would, you know, maybe put some play. Because <laughs> it kind of is, right? It it I love Merrick's take on the whole thing about the, you know, whole um anarcho syndicalist. Yeah, cross yeah. retro futurism. Uh, <laughs> you know the yeah. the the uh it, it it's you know it's artisanal programming it's uh it's it's all those things that you know i have to say if there's one thing that you could say about the extreme programming community as part of the software community is that we were hipsters before it was cool to be a hipster yeah um and uh there's something oddly perversely satisfying about that um, but not only that, I mean, you know, it. it uh, I, I like that we're finally raising a generation of people who demand humanity in their work. Yes, the way that's what I love that about them. Didn't people didn't think they had they had the right to demand humanity in their work twenty years ago? You can play into the hipsters' hands because they already appreciate the virtues of small batch anything. Right, so we can build on that. Absolutely. I mean, you mean like small batch beer? For example, that, right. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, the, the coffee shop right outside the hotel here, which has the delightful name Breaking Bean, and they actually do have, which I'm sure is a copyright infringing parody of the Breaking Bad logo. Has, has to be. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it was a, it's a Japanese style coffee shop, which I'd never been in before, but I'm in Vancouver, so what else are you going to have? Uh, and they have this beautiful row of siphon machines up on top of the uh, up on top of their case, and so you can have espresso or you can get siphon coffee. And just the whole ritual of spending the two and a half minutes watching the siphon brew my coffee Your was one as cup. much a part, right. My one cup was as <laughs> much was as much the experience as drinking the result. And uh, artisanal coffee, artisanal small batch coffee. So that's what we do, man. And we're all batch code. I should mention, uh, since we're on this topic, that uh, I do own the Twitter account XP Hipster, and it's so hipster that it Oof. hasn't tweeted because that's just because <laughs> Twitter isn't is so cool yesterday. anymore. Um, yeah, I'm ready for XP to make a comeback when I uh, when I go to um, XP days in. Uh, Karlsruhe, Germany, uh, later this year. Uh, my talk there is going to be about the resurgence of XP, the the coming resurgence of XP, and maybe by then it'll be even deeper into it. I think it's happening. I think it's inevitable. The hard part is not to be the one of the people in the crowd sitting in the corner saying, "What took you so long?" 
I've right. been waiting here for 12 years for you to come back. Where have you been? I you prefer know, to think that I'm going to sit there with open arms saying, I knew you were eventually going to find your way back. Welcome home. I, 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 I'm always going to love the metaphor of etudes, that uh, the XP practices are exercises that help us develop dexterity and consistency um, yes. and high standards. And that, that those th- all those things all together exactly are a way to lead to um, a way to the to gain the trust of the business so that they can then plan. XP is a solution to the problem that businesses typically don't understand the shape of the cost curve of a software development project. They don't mm-hmm. know, they don't see, they don't know how to see that it's going to curve upward unless they do specific things to keep it flatter. XP yeah. is those things. And that's, that's the brilliance behind what Kent Beck did is that he flattened that cost curve almost to a pancake and he demonstrated yep. it convincingly through the literature. And for some reason we've allowed that, that, that pancake to like, you know, it's, it's crinkling up again. I wonder if it's just time to smash it. And I think he's retired now, but I, I think there's room to, to bring those, those thoughts back. I'm very much looking forward to the resurgence of XP. And I think we're going to look back at this and it'll be, you know, you know, the software community is happy to, uh, to do what's effective once they've exhausted all the other alternatives. Um, right. and I think we've been, I think we've been exhausting all the other agile alternatives for the last 12, 15 years. And, um, it'll be nice to hear people talk about the ideas, recapture names, you know, prominent names that have, that were otherwise consigned to relative obscurity, um, because we'll be reading their stuff again and it'll be like, you know, it'll, it'll be our, our Renaissance. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, not, not, I'll, I'm not going to lie with some smug satisfaction and, and <laughs> I make no apology for that, but also because there is some vindication that, that we weren't just, we weren't nuts that we we understood that this, you know, we know that maybe we were a little over, overly proscriptive at times, but, you know, we weren't nuts that the, these things are important. These things are essential, that practical, that, you know, technical excellence is a key ingredient um, and that there are, you, you've got to do it. You've got to, you, you've got to write tests because that's one out of a million programmers is smart enough to write good code without tests. And maybe one out of a million out of a million programmers is smart enough to design complicated systems well without tests, without the feedback from tests. None of us is going to work with that person. Never. I mean, it's vanishingly small chance that we're going to get to work with that person. I talked to that person at Agile Roots. I'm not sure that I believed what he was saying. I guess I would have needed to see what he's talking about. But he was saying uh, he doesn't really like to pair anymore. He doesn't really like the test drive anymore. He has other ways of validating what he's doing. And then there's some, you know, there's usually some infrastructure that does the checking that he'd be worried about. Oh, wait, no, you're talking about any more. I'm talking about never needed it. There's oh, plenty of people who, there's okay. plenty of okay. people who, who, you I'll know, like I, I, I am a, I'm a much, much more effective programmer, even if you take tests away than I was 15 years ago, in part mm-hmm. because of a lot of the stuff that I learned with tests. I, I can do a lot of the test driving in my head now. 
But that's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of practice and seeing the same patterns over and over again. And that's, you know, that's the etudes thing. That's where that metaphor of etudes comes in. It's, I, it's the equivalent of the finger exercises. And then when it's time to play that difficult passage, the fingers know what to do. You know, a lot of the st- a lot of the design work that a lot of the stuff that I do that looks like upfront design is really test driving really quickly in my head, only because I've I've test driven that kind of code a hundred times before. Yeah. So with that said, JB, any plugs or anything coming up that you'd like to to let people know about that I can add to the show notes and. Uh... Well, so uh, the uh, European uh, Tour 2015 is uh, looks like it's going to be late October until Christmas ish. Uh, so anyone in Europe who is interested in working with me, I've got some time in November and, uh, so you can always go to, uh, jbrains.ca and uh, from there you can figure out how to get in, in touch with me and let me know. You can have me for the, I'm already in Europe. You don't have to pay for the transatlantic flight price. And as always, online-training.jbrains.ca. So anybody who wants to either... Uh, go through the world's best intro to test driven development or who wants the J brains experience where you have me on your team as a very, very part-time member of your team for $27 a month. Uh, I'll answer your questions. You know, that's, I'm happy to have as many people who are willing to give that a shot. It's only, you're, you're never going to get a consultant for $27 a month. Not going to happen. I will tell you, what do you got? What do you got going on? First things first, my uh, Agile Roots experience report, which was called Shoestring Agility in a Velcro Organization. Uh, I have the recording of the live performance. It is uh, it's a little variable in sound quality because I just sort of set my phone to recording and then walked around. But you can make it out. I kind of evened it out on the levels. And there's some good stories in there, including some things that I talked about a little bit tonight. Um, there's uh, I loved Agile Roots so much that I want to tell everyone when it will be next year because they know. It's going to be June 16th and 17th, 2016. The slides are all online. And finally, uh, apropos of our discussion today about pairing and mobbing, I just released an episode of Agile in Three Minutes called Pair, which covers a lot of the things we talked about in 180 seconds or less. And I'll jump in there and say anybody who sends Amitai a few dollars, he'll then take that, he'll pool all that money together, and he'll go to speechpad.com, and he'll get that talk transcribed, and then you guys... Don't have to worry about the audio quality at all. So go find Amitai, figure out how to give him $5, and if 15 or 20 of you can do it, then he'll have enough money to get that stuff transcribed for you. Very good. Well, we also have to figure right. out ways to make sure speechpad.com gets money because they do great work. And I'm Ryan Ripley. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Ripley. Check out agileanswerman.com for blog posts about many Agile topics, including some of the topics you heard about tonight, along with other podcast episodes that you can listen to. Or follow us on iTunes. Please subscribe to the show, leave us comments, feedback, reviews. Those all help us get the word out about the show and help us make the show better for you. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and have a good night. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening, and Scrum on!